which is short, it's punchy, it's to the point, it's meant to annoy and irritate, but also inspire and motivate. And here's the interesting thing. We've designed something that looks like a comic and a fanzine. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 331. Today is Sunday, the 9th of June, 2019. Just a quick announcement that my new book, Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and AI, is now out as an audiobook, also available on Amazon or Audible. Anyway, on to this week's guest. And it's my friend Adrian Swinsko. Adrian is a speaker, author, and renowned expert on customer experience, who runs the rare business consultancy, focused on helping companies to improve their customer service and customer experience. After his book, How to Wow, Adrian has just penned Punk CX, edited by my friend Oishin Loney. It's a tremendous read for anyone interested in making waves and shaking things up for success. In this conversation with Adrian, we look at some of the key points of the book, why and how to deliver a punk attitude in business and create a much stronger customer experience. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Adrian Swinsko, wonderful to have you back on the show. You and I first did a podcast back in 2015 around your last book, uh, How to Wow Customers, uh, which was a great book, great read, highly recommended. Thank Yet, you. You're on the new stuff and you and I, we get to chat. I get to catch up with you regularly, which I love. And your last book is Punk CX. Yes, and, sir. And one of the things that I like the most about it, outside of the, the wonderfully spunky, punky form, is this key message, which is that punk is an attitude and a mindset, not a method nor the answer. Yeah. So, um, Adrian, for those who don't know you, tell us who you are and what you're up to. Uh, well, first of all, Minter, um, hello, old friend. Mm-hmm. Um, nice to see you and to speak to you. It's um, so. What am I up to? So I, I guess I'm heavily involved in the customer service and customer experience space. I um, do a lot of research, analysis, kind of writing, and sort of speaking to all sorts of various kind of people. Um, that helps uh, me think about and them think about uh, service and experience in a different way. So in that. In my work, it manifests itself in terms of I do a lot of advisory work, uh, workshops, and speaking and, and writing about it. My my goal is to help build um, organizations that deliver better outcomes for both their customers and their people. And the thing about the the the, the genesis of the punk kind of idea came about uh, as many things do sometimes. I find uh, over a pint of Guinness, hmm. um, which I was having with a friend of mine, Oshin Lunny, who helped edit the book in back in December 2017. And I was having a bit of a, what some people would call a bit of a rant to him about what I thought was the state of the service and experience sort of space and how I was kind of bemoaning the lack of, the lack of, the lack of progress it, it felt like. And and I thought, I wish somebody would just do something a little bit more punk. And that 
I guess another point followed, and that I quickly forgot the idea. But I think it sat with me subconsciously for for some time, and it sort of reemerged, really, it sort of popped back into my head last summer, and I started to really think about it, and I and I thought, well, actually, there's something here because if I thought about if I th- at the time I was thinking about not just punk as in terms of bands, but and, and a movement, but actually where it came from and, and how it came about, and that made me think about well, punk came about. Um, or exploded out of the back of prog rock, which emerged, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Now, prog rock was interesting because it was it was popular, but it was also uh, accused of being overly indulgent, self-indulgent, elaborate, complicated, quite exclusive, and so on and so forth, and also in, dis- in danger of disappearing up its own arse. Mm. Now, I thought that's that's interesting because I thought... Well, actually, if I reflect on the service and experience space, that it's starting to exhibit some of the same characteristics as prog rock did in the 1970s, i.e. it's becoming very technical, very complicated, functionalized, specialized, metri- you know, metricized, yada, 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 you know, the, the, the sort of thing. It's becoming this thing. There's And there's a beautiful image I've come across which talks about, shows the MarTech sort of landscape, I think it's called MarTech 5000, and it splits up all the different sort of software vendors into all sorts of different spaces. Like 5,000 pieces of software that you could possibly say are in that sort of like service and experience kind of like space in the broadest sense. And I'm thinking, oh, my word, that's complicated. And so that led me to think, well, if prog rock was one of the catalysts for the emergence of punk rock, which exploded at the back of it with its DIY democratic back to basics dare to be different approach and not needing to be liked by everybody and is willing to stick two fingers up to those that didn't like it or objected to it and if the cx and service sort of space is exhibiting the same characteristics as um prog rock i did in the 1970s i went aha therefore what would a punk rock version of cx look like and that was like that was the start of it that was something that's the, the light of the blue touch paper and it was like, oh, brilliant. Now I've got a written book. Then I was like, oh, brilliant. And I was all excited. And then I then I sort of like felt slightly deflated because I thought, oh, crumbs. Now I need to write something about that. I need to really explore this. And so... Cue, what, another, what, cue another Guinness. Yeah, cue another bit Guinness and a lot of kind of like chin scratching. Um, and then I thought, well, actually... I didn't want to do go down the traditional book route because... To, in keeping with a punk ethos, a punk wouldn't write 50,000 words to tell you what they thought. They'd just tell you what they thought. And so I started compiling all these different sort of ideas that, that, that I could uh, put together, which I have a lot of them, but they're sort of orphans and they don't necessarily fit in one place. And I sort of scooped them all up and then developed them and added more. And basically, we've written this book, which is short, it's punchy, it's to the point, it's meant to annoy and irritate, but also inspire and motivate and here's the interesting thing. It's designed, and this is the fun thing as well, it's been the beautifully beautiful experience of it all. It's um, We've designed something that looks like a comic and a fanzine. And so I guess the biggest compliment I've had from people that have um, that have seen a preview of the book is that they've said, I don't read business books, but I'd read that just because of the way it looks. 
it just you just get drawn in because it feels like a it feels so different. Yeah, it's, le- so, it's less a read; it's more an exploring experience. It, indeed, indeed. So I um, we were talking. I remember another time about this, and it feels like an art project, a personal art project. Um, and I hope people enjoy it. Well, I also hope they're annoyed and irritated, and as I say, inspired and motivated uh, by it, kind of too. But if they're not, then that's fine. And that's kind of the punk in me that's kind of coming out and going like, I made this, you might not like it, but that's okay. But then again, you might like it, and that's cool. So I'm proud of it. I'm happy to kind of to, to announce that it's actually officially launched and it's available around the place. And let's see if we can start some fires. So in, in, in your mind, what did you learn from rewriting this and putting it together? What are some of the things that you took away, scratched your head inside of Adrian's mind as you went through this process? So the, the, one of the biggest things is that, um, and it, it really brought a quote that I put in the book, because it just almost is as a, as a, a hat tip to the, to the quote. There's a quote at the front of the book, which has been variously ascribed to different sort of people, but I think it originally comes back, comes back to Blaise Pascal mm-hmm. in a, a letter writer who said, sure. uh, forgive me for writing a long letter as I did not have time to write a short one. Now, I've used that quote many times to, to, to explain or to try and illustrate the idea that being concise in our communication and impactful in our communication takes time. Um, and, but I, I've just lived that, that quote writ large in, in, in producing this book because rather than to write 50,000 words is relatively easy, but to write something which is under 15,000 words, but then heavily designed is much much harder so that that i've gone through this experience of having to take an idea and almost to place constraints on myself in terms of the number of words i can take to explain it so it's made me think how do i explain this in a more punchy more impactful uh more readable sort of way um so that's been a massive massive learning kind of curve for me but exciting so one of the pieces that i like in, in the preview that copy that i read was this notion of Zig Ziglar who said, um, if you can help other people, it's the best way to help yourself. Yeah. And what was lovely about what you brought in was this notion that you should also think about helping your colleagues achieve what they want to achieve. Sure. And where I, where that spoke to me is that I, I think that, you know, we all think we're part of a team. Yes, we're trying to serve the customer, want to be customer first. But in reality, we're all getting up with our issues in the morning and we're going to work and we're sitting beside someone at another desk and and that teamwork doesn't happen by mistake if you're going to get good long-term teamwork you need to think it through and and think about the others and be empathic with your co-workers so i I really like that notion of of thinking being in the shoes of your other colleagues and, and thinking how you can help them sure you know, there's a story that I use um, when I do talks. Oh, actually, it's a story and it's a slide that accompanies it with it. And it's a picture of um, the the men's 4x100 gold medal, British gold medal relay winning team from the London 2017 World Athletics Championships. 
And I put that slide up, and then I asked people to identify what, who the people are in the, in the slide. And most people can't. They might mail to me one, but not all of them. And I said, and I used the, 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 the picture to illustrate that the point with a relay is not to be the fastest runners individually. The point of the relay is to get the baton round. And actually how we can all achieve greatness together if we work together and we, we look after each other and we help each other. And, and particularly if that means passing the baton on. And that becomes a, a skill in itself. It's not just about our individual performance kind of uh, in terms of running, but it's also about how do we work with each other, the, the baton passing. And so I guess if you think about the Zig Ziglar quote, if you help enough people get what they want, then you'll get what you want. Then you put it in that relay context. The, the idea is to run fast and also be a great baton collector, but also a great baton passer honor, as it were. Um, and and only then can we achieve kind of greatness. And you've got to really clue in to your other teammates to think, figure out what's the best thing for you to do for them to allow, allow them to succeed as well. And and just riffing on that, since I used to run a lot of relay, that was, and it made me think about that the subtlety of the performance as a team because you have two who are running the four by four by one. You have two who are doing the curves, yep. two are doing straightaways. Yeah. You have the person who's doing the start. Yeah. And then you have the person who's kicking the end. Yeah. And uh, and generally the you know the first and the fourth are the shortest sprinters because you can do more uh, on two, three, and f yeah, two and three in terms of right. starting and ending. If you depending on how you really fine tune it, and then there's this baton passing, and the number of times that that teamwork actually happens through the screw ups, the drop batons, the yep. missed passes, and and how you deal with that before. Mm -hmm. Is got to. I'm sure that there's a strong correlation between how you manage the fuck ups that happened previously, to the moment where you perform and it all happens together. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I, because the interesting thing also about relays, sort of digging into that a little bit more, is that the um, sort of four, three, and two are watching one. Yeah. And then. And then, as the, the, then, then four and three are watching the baton pass between one and two, and yeah. then it's so forth. And so you're almost like you're almost having to do make these micro adjustments yeah. based on kind of what's happening. So you're mm -hmm. almost responding in real time. Yeah. And it's like just being tuned into that, like you say, they've been empathic around not just to the person but to the situation. So it's not just about you're not just sitting in yourself, but you're actually paying attention to the world and then responding kind of to it that, that you know that the world that you're in at that that particular moment in time. So yeah, it's a, that's it's it's. I think it's a really interesting, really useful, lovely analogy that when you when you dig into it, there's a lot that we can learn learn about it. Another part of your book that, of course, I appreciated heavily was that you had this uh, wonderful page on empathy. Empathy yeah. is not soft; it's hard. Yes, and, and you quote the Scott Robert Burns. Yes, indeed, I, I do. I'm not being able to do a Scottish accent on you. I, I'm thinking that you would be better off saying, "Oh, wad some power." <laughs> so the way the, the way the the quote goes it goes is, "Oh, wad some power, the gift of us to see ourselves as others see us." Indeed, and beautiful. That, that comes from Robert Burns to a louse, and I love that quote because it's if you 
I ask people what they, to 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 what they think that that they, you know that that it means and who the gifty is and the gifty in fact is is uh, is God or a divine being and people see this this idea that to be empathic or empathetic uh, to be able to see ourselves as as others see us is almost like a divine gift and and that's what he's sort of suggesting there but the 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 challenge is is it's um, it's not a divine gift. It's just hard work. Mm-hmm. And some people dismiss it as being oh, it's soft skills sort of thing. And you're like going, yeah, but they actually research shows that, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can develop it. It's a skill that we can develop. Some people are born and more naturally disposed to, towards it than others. But the way our brain works is that we default to not doing it because it's hard work. And therefore, we default to energy conservation and so on and so forth. And therefore, to do it well, means that we have to we have to practice it we have to pay attention to it we have to do it repeatedly and we have to keep almost consciously switching on to it to make it to make it kind of matter it just doesn't it's it's not a thing that we can do and then be done with it's mm. a thing that we have to do all of the time and we have to be conscious to it sort of staying present you know to that and so that's why it's hard it's not soft it's hard in in every sense of the mm. word beautiful so, Adrian, your book, you, you refer to many different companies uh, for their ability to demonstrate punk customer experience, punk CX. Mm-hmm. Uh, which ones did you, would you say stand out for demonstrating that? And how would you illustrate that for us? Well, so I actually don't think that they're like you said right at the very, very beginning. I said um, you very... Um, graciously kind of quoted an element in the book where you talked about punk is not a, is, is is more of a mindset ra- mindset rather than a method you know it's not the answer and that's you know that's up to up to you i think what that i wouldn't i would i would suggest that there are no anybody can be punk and it can all apply to all sorts of different parts of your business you can look at a really conventional business but you things that you're doing inside the business can be very very kind of punk like for example Let's take an example of uh, a business that's in uh, a highly regulated industry, say the financial services. Um, and let's take an example of uh, Zopa.com, who are one of the biggest kind of peer-to-peer lenders um, in Europe, if not the if not the world. Now they are online, and so one of the things that many sort of online businesses um, struggle with is staying close to. Their, their their customers and really really understanding their customers, and but a lot of them actually then double down on their data, as it were. And I think the data becomes there is you know they almost conflate the two data and consum- customer behavioral data becomes their customer. So it was almost like they 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 overlap, but actually real understanding uh, um, for them came about when realizing well our customers aren't their data. Our customers are just our customers. They're human beings. And the data is, is just a manifestation of a part of their behavior. So what they did was said, well, we need to get closer to our customers and we need to figure out how to do that and to better understand them. So what they did is they said, well, why don't we bring some customers into our offices? We have this kind of, they had a kind of viewing lab, as it were, or a customer lab. And they brought some customers in to, and the customers were there to, to actually do some real transactions. They were going to spend some money, some of their, their own money. Um, and then behind a mirrored glass, they put a whole bunch of 
you know, uh, account managers, you know, designers, developers, you know, marketeers, you know, the whole shooting match behind this, this, um, uh, this, this glass is one way mirror to watch the customers do some of their business. And so one of the fascinating things that uh, they said it was the most one of the most excruciating things that they've ever done. Because there's, there's, there's some very, very clever people who've done some very, very clever things watching a customer trying to interact with the thing that they've built. And the customer, you know, they think it's really obvious, but the customer is like struggling, kind of going, why is this and that? And you have these people screaming. Stupid you know, customer. <laughs> it's over there. <laughs> no, it's, only, it's over there. But uh, Andrew Lawson, who's a chief product officer over there, uh, told me the story about that. And he said it was probably the best and continues to be one of the best things that we, that, that, that we do habitually because what it does do is it collapses that, that distance that comes from what you would call the curse of expert knowledge and how we make assumptions about, about um, what we think other people should and shouldn't do or, or should know or shouldn't know based on our own sort of knowledge set. Um, but when you face with real experience, that just kind of comes kind of tumbling down. So, being taking the time and expending the effort and 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 exposing themselves quite bravely quite courageously to that type of feedback where they have no input they just have to watch it's very passive i think is um is just one thing that says actually we're doing that we're daring to be different on ourselves and with our customers because that is going to help us do um be better and be better for them and i say i for me, I think even a small thing like that, or a relatively small thing like that, I think that is quite punk in of itself, in of itself, because it's not normal, as it were. And it says air quotes on the radio. <laughs> so you've inspired me to come up with another thought, which is this idea of being in their shoes. So uh, the the punk punk version of that is, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's think about being in their shoes. No, no let's take off their shoes. And let me smell their foot odor. <laughs> One is an intellectual exercise. Yeah. Looking at data, looking at numbers. And that's, you know, these are pools of, of pockets of people and, and persona. One is actually getting that humanity. Yeah. In all the, its real, glory. Kind of, the, the, the real kind of insight which comes up and smacks you across the that's face it. and just goes, oh, my God. <laughs> foot odor included. So, yes. um you know, one one of the things that uh, I, I smiled a lot about since uh, I worked in, let's say, blue chip type environments most of my life, and thinking about the cross section of punk. Um, as you know, I'm I'm a big music fan, and but I kind of swing more psychedelic rock, um, to be to be exact, which is equally difficult to talk about in a business environment. Yet punk CX or punk attitude in a blue chip type of company, how do you see punk fitting into a blue chip and how do you sort of persuade them to get that in, get that type of attitude to work when everyone's wearing ties and got corks up their bum? So I, I, I so I think the thing that um, there's a, I think there's a misconception um, around what, what punk is. I mean, I think people can think that um, if you think about punk, 
a lot of the things that speak to people that spring to people's minds is they think about they think about Mohicans, they think about green hair and lots of piercings and leather and chains and all these different things. But if I actually go, if you think about punk music and you think about um, and people should go and, and, and should go and, and and search on YouTube for this. If you two tracks that I use, two punk tracks, very famous punk tracks. One is um, "Ever Fallen in Love with Someone That You Shouldn't Have" by the Buzzcocks, and also "Teenage Kicks" uh, by the Undertones. And if you go and search the very early videos of those kind of songs being played on on shows like Top of the Pops, now the lead singer of the Undertones was Fergal Sharkey. And the lead singer of the Buzzcocks was Pete Shelley. Now, if you if you just look at how they looked, Pete Shelley, on the first time they were on top of the pops, was dressed in this kind of almost like it looked like an acrylic brown pinstriped um, kind of like shirt. He looked like he'd just come back from I don't know CNA. If people know the, the reference CNA, he looks like he looks like somebody's dad. Whereas Fergal Shark is wearing this red v-neck sweater with a kind of like a you know white granddad shirt and a floppy kind of like uh, floppy kind of hair and so it's not about what you look at like i think it's not about those preconceptions it's about being willing to embrace the attitude as it were so from to go back to your original question about how can big blue chip companies do be more punk is that well it doesn't have to be about your whole business. It could be about elements of your business that you are trying to, you want to change. You're slightly frustrated with, like there are some big companies that um, they do very very creative things about how they hire people. Like for example, one of the biggest and fastest growing online home furnishing retailers right now is a company called Wayfair. Both in the states and also in in the um, in the in the, U- the UK, now they were looking for they were struggling to find staff uh, the the right sort of staff for their service experience sort of support sort of functions customer facing roles, and they were they rather than going through the standard keep going down the whole um, you know job boards and databases and CVs and you know interview sort of like um, um, route. They thought, well, we need to do something different if we want to find different people. So what they ended up doing is they 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 came up with this hypothesis that was we need to find people that have passion, passion for something, and uh, with the idea being that that passion is transferable. The idea of being interested in something and passionate about it is transferable into another area. So they were a bit like going, okay, so why don't we set up a recruitment stall at the local comic con? And they did this down in San Diego, down as a, as a bit of a, a bit of a trial. Two things kind of happened. One, they got huge amount of enthusiasm and interest from people in the company that wanted to go and crew the recruitment um, stand at Comic Con because they get free passes to Comic Con anyway and and do it on on, on work time. And the, um, and the second thing is it it's it was so different for a company to do something. Um, can set up a recruitment stand at a, at a comic book convention. It, they got a huge amount of interest because they had Guardians of the Galaxy characters all around the sort of place, and so it was just like such an engaging sort of thing. And the response has been is been incredible. So I guess that's kind of one example. The second example I would give would be around. Uh, it's not in the book, but I think it's a really good example. Is if you remember back, um, I think it was about eighteen months ago, maybe slightly more where KFC in the UK 
Um, they run out of chicken. They changed their logistics suppliers, and the and the whole network run out of chicken. And it it was it was catastrophic for about a week. There were signs all over these kind of KFC branches, like "Sorry, we run out of chicken." And K- they, they they turned to KF KFB for Kentucky Fried Burgers or something. Well, actually, well, the interesting thing that they did is they worked with their their agencies and and they they did a beautiful play on sort of words where they took the KFC and had the had this big big ads that had a, a chicken bucket with all the branding and they rather than have KFC they put FCK on there. The idea just kind of went almost hold our hands up. I see. We're just going like going we fucked up. Sorry. Um and the point was they the what they did is they almost like they apologize like the the the, the campaign was called apologize like you effing mean it. Right? And they sort of they were like no, no corporate bullshit or anything. No kind of like kind of like spin or whatever. That they just can put their hands up. Be like, we messed up. We're sorry, and we did something got a bit funny. And it's like all on us. Mm-hmm. And what it did do is that was hugely endearing. Even though it was annoying to some people that they, they run out of uh, chicken, it was the way that they responded. To it was hugely endearing to their 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 customers. And, in, and engaging, and actually, if anything, they forgive them and actually like them more. But mm-hmm. internally, because I know this because I've spoken to some of the KFC people, um, and this this it, this has had an impact globally. It's actually given KFC globally um, is given them the permission to go off and do things which are braver, and are a bit more courageous and a bit more creative around kind of that. So it's almost a a, a permission to to innovate on kind of what they, what, you know, where, from where they currently are and, and sort of expand their brand equity. And so I guess my point is, is that the, an opportunity to be a bit more punk it exists all over the organization. It's just about tuning yourself into it and looking for those opportunities. Would it be a fair statement or translation to perhaps insert the word courage because you just used the word with Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. In, 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 in that it's about being courageous and taking maybe the path less trodden, no matter where you are in the business. It doesn't have to be necessarily around customer experience. It can be the way you innovate on the factory line or uh, how you, you, you manage recruitment process or, let's say, you know, firing process. Mm. Completely. I think that's the thing. I think because I believe that everything that happens in inside an organization actually eventually feeds through into the the ultimate kind of um, uh, customer's experience. It's like the like the quote from Ziegler, where you know, yeah. if you treat your employees one way, then that's the the chances are that will flow through the way you treat your customers. Indeed, and so it's trying to, you know, rather than actually looking for you know the set, the same old solution or the ways that other people have kind of done things if it hasn't worked for them then why is it going to work for you and that becomes lazy thinking you know people go oh we need to, you know people talk about and there's a bit in the book which um there's an idea that i you know a, a quote from tom peters he talks about this idea that companies bemoan siloed thinking and lack of collaboration and all that sort of stuff and one of the first things that they do they default to Putting to get putting, installing, uh, collaboration-based software, 
to allow people to sort of message each other. And the, the problem with that is that whilst those things can be really great, the problem with that is it doesn't necessarily uh, address some of the very human relationship stuff that doesn't get done in an, in an organization, that we're all busy typing away, but actually not looking up and actually speaking to each other and building those relationships. And Tom comes up with a beautiful idea, and it's, you know, he says, he says lunch. He said, we, have, we all take lunch. Wouldn't it be brilliant if we almost did like, like a blind date type of thing with kind of your lunch times? Where you randomly get kind of paired up with somebody that you just that you don't know, and you spend kind of half an hour with them going, "Hey, I'm like, hey, Minter, how you doing? What do you do? Where do you come from? How's you know? Are you married? You have kids? You know, blah blah, and all these different things. Because then you build up, start building up this this soft tissue inside an organization. Now you could you could do that virtually, or you could do that face to face, depending on how your organization is is structured. But I guarantee if you did it and you keep doing it, one, obviously you're going to meet new people. But two, if things start to go wrong and you need some help and you pick up the phone or you can send somebody an email and I said, hey, Minter, I need some help. If I've had lunch with you and we've kind of established that connection, more than likely that 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 uh, you're going to be more predisposed towards helping me rather than just getting a random email from somebody out of the blue. Yeah, I think underneath that, that kind of an action will also help develop your own empathic muscle. Absolutely. You're, you're meeting new people, you're learning other contexts that are, you know, people live other ways, have other thoughts and values and whatever. And, and by exposing yourself to other ways, you say, Oh, well, actually not everyone thinks like I do. Exactly. And I think that the, the other thing, let me be clear is like, I'm not being a Luddite here and I'm not being anti-technology. I think a lot of, uh, much of the new technological developments are 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 brilliant and exciting but i guess the the thing that we need to remember is not to or to be careful of is not to let those technological developments act as a as a complete replacement for some of the real kind of human uh, behavioral sort of stuff that allows us to um to spend some time with people to build, build connections to build em- to build empathy to build understanding uh, because when we get that balance right, the human and technology balance, that's when we do great things. Adrian, last question, um, moving a little bit away from punk per se, mm-hmm. but in terms of customer experience, what kind of trends do you see out there? Where, where's the, What does the future hold for making great customer experiences happen? Um, so, as I, you know, if I build on what I just kind of said, I think technology has got a huge role to play. Um, the problem is, is and what we've seen over the over the last sort of eighteen months, kind of two years, is that there's this empathic kind of deficit between the, some of the the experiences that, that that companies are building and actually what their customers kind of want. So the customers are saying, yeah, I kind of like these these um, these these digital tools, but I think that what you're doing is you're making the experience increasingly humanless. And that's what they what what matters to them, and that's what they value, particularly when things get complicated or difficult, challenging, so on and so forth. And I think the real challenge for businesses uh, in in the future is how do they how do they strike the right balance between the human and and and, and tech mix in the customer experience, and how does that complement and enable their um, their sort of business kind of strategy? So it allows them, you, you know, you don't want to over engineer something. But you have to kind of you have to figure out what's the right 
the right mix. You have to figure out what your experience strategy is, and then what the kind of what the right kind of human and tech mix is in, is in that um, that strategy. Um, if you're going to get it right, that may actually also mean that we need to take a long, hard look at the sort of technology that we are putting in place. Too many companies I see are adding more and more and more and more and more, and it's just adding complexity to, to, to that. So there's two, there's two problems with that. Add, adding complexity means it's kind of it becomes harder to manage, and it's harder to achieve that uh, connected, omni-channel kind of view of, of the customer, and therefore you end up with this unconnected experience. The other kind of challenge is, is that I think if you give people too much choice, and this is the, this, this paradox of choice idea. If you give people too much choice, whilst we might find it interesting, we, we engage less with it. Um, and I think some of the standout firms, the really standout firms, are the ones that are very, very deliberate in choosing what technology that they and what channels they want to engage with the customers over um, and concentrate on being great at those rather than trying to just keep adding and adding and adding. So there's this, this dilemma, you're like, going, do you want to be average at a lot or kind of great at a few? And it's almost being counterintuitive. Take somebody like uh, Amazon or Apple or, you know, Zappos, some of the, 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 the leaders in this sort of space. And if you think about the number of channels that they, that they serve their customers over, probably less than the number of fingers I have on my hand. Now, that doesn't mean to say they're not innovating and they're not adding new channels, but what they will do is they will try, and if they don't work, they will kill them rather than just leaving them. And so there's this idea that I think that as we add more to our businesses in terms of more technology and possibly more channels, I think we need to be conscious about how do we, um, how do we take away at a faster rate than we add? or at least at the same rate as we add. Because mm. what we don't want to do is we want to strive for simplicity over complexity every time. Well, I'm, think, I'm thinking of payments because there was a time when you're like, well, you know, it's all, the only way we accept payments is maybe a credit card and then there's PayPal and then there's Bitcoin. And and some would say that that is responding to the customer's desires and, and needs Sure. Because you know, I only pay this way, or I have Venmo, or whatever it is, and you end up with this huge slew of choices that correspond to a mass of people. Mm -hmm. And yet, on the other hand, we, we need to simplify. We need to be great at the things we're doing. So yeah. it's hard to to find that balance. I think it is, and I think it's a difficult choice. I mean, it, it relates to this. This you know, there's a what's it meme that went around um goes around social media every now and again which is that kind of the fomo thing the fear of missing out or if i don't do that then i'm going to miss out mm -hmm. well i'm i'm sorry you sort of like my my words for that would be just get over yourself <laughs> and realize that you know we know that um people will travel for and uh, travel for better service uh, both physically and dig digitally and also will pay more for better service so the point is, you've got to choose that. The, are you are you going to be struck down with this fear of missing out, or um, are you going to concentrate on, on on being great and on the understanding that 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 being great is a an, a magnet of attraction in a, in its own right. Yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense, Adrian. So brilliant. Um, Adrian, tell us how you can, of course, get Punk CX and or follow you, connect with you. What's the preferred way? So um, Punk CX is out on uh, Amazon, uh, both. Uh, well, it's on the, the, the UK site, the US site, the French site, the German site, the Spanish site, the Italian site nice and job. the Japanese, the Japanese site. So it's pretty much poof. It's gone all over the place. It's in paperback. It's in it's in Kindle version. Um, just uh, search for Punk CX um, and you'll find it. Um, if you want to find me, my name is Adrian Swinsco. So A-D-R-I-A-N-S-W-I-N-S-C-O-E. If you search for that, you'll find me on uh, my blog and on Twitter and on Forbes. And, and if you can search for Punk CX on Instagram as well in there. Brilliant. Well done, Adrian. Thanks for coming on the show again. Minter, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 